0: Well, good morning. good morning. All right, that's good. We're off to a good start. Uh, I am so glad uh, to be here today and uh, to have a chance to share uh, really a word from God's word. And, and I'm going to tell you that when I preach, uh, about 95 percent of the time, I'm preaching to myself, the only thing I believe that I have to deliver you, to you or anybody else that I preach to is the word that God Himself is stirring up in me by His Holy Spirit through his word. And so you're going to get an inside peek into what's going on in my own heart today. And I'm just going to tell you straight up. All right, you ready? It's brutal. It just is. In fact, the scripture warns us. It says the word of God is a two-edged sword, not one that you spread butter on your toast with. It slices, it divides, it pierces it instructs. It con- it uh, instructs. What's my word, Scott? Come on, I lost it. Yes. Convicts, yes, in righteousness. So this morning, that's what we want to let the word do to us, right? Yep. Yep. Well, there's three people that want that. What do the rest of y'all want? <laughs> All right, um, you know, you you got that mask in front of your face. So the only way I know you're with me is that you say something, okay? All right, there you go. All right, here we go. All right, I'm, I'm so glad to be here today. I don't, I don't know if you have a favorite book of the Bible, uh, but mine is Psalms. I love the Psalms. As a musician and an artist, I love the beauty of the Psalms. As one who occasionally emotes and feels deeply, I, I love the emotive nature of the Psalms. I, I love that they so often put words to what I'm feeling in my heart I love that they often describe my circumstances and and what I feel like is happening around me. I love that they put words to the cries and the longings and the desires of my heart. So often I find myself in the Psalms. But I don't just love the Psalms because they relate to me. I love the Psalms because they call me to see one who's greater than me. They, they call me to lift up my eyes to see the one who is above what I see and feel and think and call out. And so this morning, I want to take you, I want you to go with me to Psalm 95, Psalm 95. I hope you have a passage, a copy of the scriptures with you. I hope every week as you come into this place, you will bring something to jot some notes on because here's what I know about you. If you don't, you won't remember anything I said. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to speak for, to you for, on the behalf of your pastor. When your pastor spends hours crafting a word to deliver to you, then you need to take the initiative and time to ingest that word, to digest that word, because the truth of the matter is you're going to be held accountable for what you hear, okay? So it's a good idea to make some notes. You didn't bring anything this morning. You can scratch it on the palm of your hand, or record it on your phone, or go back and listen to it later. But I I want you to walk with me this morning, and let's take this word in, all right? We're going to begin with uh, what what I think is the psalmist calling us to look at God and then respond to what we see. So uh, we're going to begin with the first five verses of Psalm 95. Let's read it together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us extol him with thanksgiving. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. The first thing I want you to see here is the psalmist calling us to delight in God. There's a call in this psalm to delight in God. God. The psalmist begins with an invitation to worship, a call to express delight and joy, to rejoice. Look go. what he says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. But it's more than just a casual invitation to sing some songs. It's an intentional instruction in passionate worship. Now, listen to me. This is not just for Sunday morning. It's for all our days, for every day. Listen, you and I need to sing joyful and glad songs to the one who is Lord over all, sovereign King, mighty God. We need to shout for joy to the one who is the secure and solid rock of our salvation. Our hearts, our mouths need to overflow with gratitude because our hearts are full of thanksgiving for every blessing. We need to posture ourselves in awe of the greatness of God, and and we need to make a big deal out of Him and sing His praises day after day. Can I just ask you a question? Does that characterize you? Is that the mark of you? Even as you come in this place this morning, I I was thinking as Zach was up here leading, you know what? No worship leader should really have to work so hard to get you to express delight in God. It's not about singing songs. It's not about participation. It's not about following his lead. It's about delighting in God and expressing that delight. But let me ask you this, why? Why should we sing? Why should we delight? Why should we find joy? Especially, especially after the year we've had or the year we're having. Why why should there be joy and gladness and thanksgiving and praise when there's still so much injustice and pain and heartache and need and sickness and death and hurt? Why? Why should we sing like that? Well, verse three tells us, look at it. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. My brothers and sisters, we should sing and shout and be glad because he is great and greatly to be praised. We should sing and shout and be glad because he is great and greatly to be praised. Worship is about him. It is not about us. Listen, the call to worship God is never restrained, diminished, or minimized by the state of our current situation. Worship is not about your circumstances. It's not about your bank account. It's not about your ownership of anything. It's not about your relationships. It's not about you achieving your dreams. Worship is about the greatness of our God in the best of times and on the worst of the days, he's still sovereign and he's still good. There's no one like him, no one equal to him. And his greatness and goodness cannot be measured by my physical circumstances. His character isn't conditioned on the quality of my state of affairs. He's the Lord, the great God, the great king above all gods. There is nobody like my God, and he is worthy of our all delight and praise. But you might ask me, how do we know that? I mean, I look at my circumstances, I look at my life, I look at what's happening in Afghanistan. I, I look at what's happening around the world. I look at what's happening in our country and next door. I look at how my friends are sick. I look at all these things that are happening. How, how do I know he's the great God? How, how do I know who he is? Well, look at verse four. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. You want to know how we know he's great? We look at creation. He's the God of all creation. He made it. He owns it. He holds it all together and he keeps it all going. This may be an unpopular thing for me to say in a super highly educated place like Charlotte, but I want you to know that this is a foundational truth that you and I must cling to. From cover to cover, The Bible lays claim to this truth. So I want you to hear me say this morning, if you discount this, if you move this to the side, if you disregard this truth, there's about, there's a good section of scripture you're going to have to go through your Bible and just mark out. All right? Listen to it. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Isaiah forty, twenty-six: lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one, calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1:16 and 17 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Revelation 4:11 Worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and And by your will, they existed and were created. Listen to me. You don't have to know how he did it. You just need to know he did it. The fact of the matter is our tiny little brains could not even begin to comprehend the complexity of God's work in creation. That's why we struggle with it so bad because we can't figure it out and we're just arrogant enough to think that if we can't figure it out, he must not have done it. Better put your steel toe shoes on because I'm coming for you today. Listen, listen to me. Listen to me. If you and I would just look at t- intently at creation and marvel at the complexities of the world, if we would let ourselves be astounded by the laws of science that govern the universe and the simple fact that day after day, the sun comes up and the stars pop out at night, the seasons change and water rain waters the earth and the crops grow, if you would consider the absolutely incredible beauty and the interdependent nature of all creation, if we would marvel at the way our bodies function and the mind-blowing reality that we can can see and hear and feel and smell and speak. If we would stop and think about the way our internal systems fight infection and our skin replenishes and renews after the tiniest little scrape or cut, if we would let ourselves be stunned by the sheer fact that every species of every living thing on the earth has a way to reproduce, if we would stop and consider creation, then we would know that there is a God, a God who in wisdom created all things and is faithfully working to make himself known in creation. I wish I I had time this morning to take a deep dive into this with you, but creation is not an inconsequential doctrine. It It is foundational to our faith and essential for our hope. Listen, practically speaking, listen to me, if God didn't create it, he has no claim on it. If he didn't create it, he doesn't own it, then he has no control over it. And if he has no control over creation, then he's not God. And we don't have a shred of hope. This is not inconsequential, my friends. This is absolutely essential. And the Bible claims it from cover to cover. The world is not random. It is not a convenient coincidence of a cataclysmic big bang. You and I are more than just the arbitrary assimilation and arbitrary and accidental assimilation of atoms. Try that one as a tongue twister. I got a 12-year-old that loves those. I'm going to get him to say that. Arbitrary and accidental assimilation of atoms and molecules. Contrary to a recent pharmaceutical advertisement. Your body is not randomly assigned you at birth. We were lovingly knit together in our mother's wombs, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of our creator God. Our lives have meaning and value and purpose because of God's grand design. Creation was not a coincidence. Psalm 104, 24, how many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom, you made them all. Creation, every part of it, every part of it screams at us, there is a God. And he is wise and wonderful and gloriously creative and good. And you and I need to regularly position ourselves to marvel at what God has done in creation and worship our Creator. Y'all, we need to take up that position. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 34.1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Listen to me. You talk about what you love. You do. Just get in the room with a teenage girl who's got a new boyfriend. She will not shut her trap. I got two two teenage boys. I'm so sick of hearing about all the jacked up, modified, painted cars, the exotics. I mean, we like everything from Humvees to, um, I can't even tell you what they are, Teslas to the, I mean like the super exotic. My kids have this, they love cars. And how do I know they love cars? Because they talk about them all the time. I'm gonna tell you something. You wanna know what you love? You survey your, con- your conversations for the last week. Some of y'all love politics. That's all you talk about. Some of you love things. That's all you talk about. That's all you dream about. Some of you love certain people or ideas or dreams. And you talk about it. But listen to me. You don't just talk about what you love. The converse is also true. You learn to love the things you talk about. You see, talking about it stirs up desire in us. The more you speak about the value of something, the more you talk about it, the more you're drawn to it. And that's why you and I need to position ourselves to awe at God and talk about His greatness. That's why when we sing a song like God is good, God is great, you need to shout it out because you need to speak to your heart. This other stuff will not delight you. It will not satisfy you. God will, and you speak about it in a way that makes Him big. Listen to me. Praise is not for God's benefit. He's not on an ego trip needing you to prop up his faltering self-image. He knows he's awesome. (laughs) Praise is for your benefit because you don't know he's awesome. Praise is for you because it turns your heart toward God. Praise stirs up awe and trust and desire. Listen to me. Faith grows in the garden of worship. And I want to say to some of you, that's why you need to sing in this place because the person next to you needs to hear you call out the greatness of God. When you call yourself a son or daughter of God and you stand in this place with your arms folded and your mouth shut and that look of boredom on your face, you say to everybody else, he's not a big deal. You don't stir up faith. You don't stir up trust. You don't love your brothers when you don't declare the greatness of God. Stop talking about your new job and your new house. Stop talking about that place at the lake. Stop talking about Fixer Upper and whatever it is you talk about and talk about the greatness of God. You wanna stir up faith in your own heart, but you wanna draw other people. Listen, I'm gonna tell you this, one of the reasons that so many of us have trouble sharing Christ with other people is because we can't describe him in a way that makes him desirable. We can talk about a whole lot of junk, but we can't talk about Jesus. You gotta look at him, you gotta gaze on him, you you gotta put yourself in the place of awe and wonder and delight. Now, let's go back to Psalm 95 because there's a second invitation here. The first is a call to delight in God. The second is a call to submit. Psalm 95, verse 6 and 7. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Okay, again, again, there's this call to respond to the revelation of God, but the tone here is decidedly different. This is not a call to sing and shout and dance, but an urging to bow, to kneel before the Lord, our maker. Not only has God, has the God of all creation formed our bodies, knitting us together in our mother's wombs, creating us in his very image. In Christ Jesus, you and I are, Recreated. We're, we're made again. We're made now to be his people, the sheep of his pasture. Ephesians 2.10 says this, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. By grace, we are now his adopted sons and daughters. 1 yeah. Peter two nine and 10. But you are a chosen race. <coughs> a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now, now, brothers and sisters, you've received mercy. Can I ask you today, do you know that? Have you received that mercy? Have you been made new by the blood of Jesus? Have have you by grace through faith received Jesus as your Savior? If so, let me ask you this. Why should he have chosen you? I can't tell you how many times this week I've asked myself as I watch what's happening in Afghanistan. Why? Why was I born here? Why was I given the opportunity to hear the gospel freely, without any danger? Why was I exposed to this? Why should you have heard the gospel and been granted faith to believe? Why should you have been released from captivity and darkness? Why should he have shown his marvelous light on you? Why should you have been brought from death to life? Why should you be counted as one of his, cared for by him, protected and provided for by him? I'll tell you, you shouldn't have, and neither should I. Listen, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature objects of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I love this. You ought to memorize some of these verses. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Somebody in the room ought to shout. Not polite shout. You need to remember you were dead. You weren't broken. You weren't messed up. You weren't a little bit lost. You were dead. And the only reason you live is because of the grace of God. It has nothing to do with you. He didn't choose you because you're uh, cut above everybody else. He didn't call you because you're so wonderful. He didn't tap you because he needed you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. Lamentations three says, I, "Therefore, I call this to mind, and I have hope, because of the great Lord's great love for us, we're not consumed." Translated, "You ain't burnt up this morning, cause He loves you. That's the only reason." I'm gonna preach here in a minute. Listen to me. Nothing highlights the glory and greatness of God like the gospel. If there's anything we ought to shout and sing about more than anything else, it ought to be the gospel. We start singing a gospel song in this place, the volume knob ought to go up one because we ought to be declaring to each other, I know I stink. I'm like Paul. Here's a trustworthy saying: I'm the worst of sinners. But God by his grace rescued me. See, we're too polite and put together. We we need to keep up our image. We can't let people know how jacked up and messed up we are. And can I just tell you that in that you have no opportunity to offer hope and help to people who actually are willing to admit they're jacked up and messed up. People ought to come into church and know that this is a place where we have been set free by the grace of Jesus, not because of our initiative. They need to know that we can be made whole and free and forgiven because of the goodness of God, not because of the goodness of us. Listen to me, if you're not willing to admit you're jacked up, messed up, screwed up, broken, then you have no opportunity to call the world to come to Jesus. The gospel highlights the glory and greatness of God and nothing should provoke us to worship like our redemption. Listen, salvation says more about God than it does about us. By his own goodness and mercy, God has made us to be his and thus has a claim on us and we belong to him. That's why the writer of 1 Corinthians says you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You are bought at a price. So honor God. Honor God with your body. So we submit. We submit to him and his purposes for our lives. But listen to me. He's not just sovereign over us. He's not just the God who reigns. He is a good shepherd for us. Look at how this passage describes us, the people of his pasture the flock under his care. It's tender, it's loving, it's compassionate. He doesn't call us servants, he calls us sheep. And in so doing, he reveals his character and his own heart for us. God isn't a harsh and domineering king who crushes us. And by the way, when you wanna talk about the lies that Zach was talking about, that's one of the lies some of you hear. I got a 14-year-old who thinks I exist to ruin all his fun. (laughs) I'm like, really? Do you know how much money and time and energy I put into creating an environment for you to have fun? And this is how you're gonna treat me? He's not here this service, so I I can just say all this stuff. (laughs) And y'all all all laugh, but you know what? That's about how half of you look at God about half the time. You've, You've let the enemy convince you That God is actually against you and not for you. And you need to repent of that. And you need to call him what he is. A good shepherd. A compassionate father who has compassion on you, tenderness toward you, who's devoted to you, who cares about you, who's committed his very life to you. Romans 8.32 is one of my favorite verses. How will he, who did not spare his only son, not also along with him, freely give us all things? Just stop for a second. If I sacrifice my son for you and then you accuse me of being against you, I'm gonna take you out. Do you understand how ridiculous that is? Absurd to look at the cross and then accuse God of maltreatment of you. Y'all, we gotta look at it. We gotta remember who he is. And when you see him as he is and recognize the depth of his love for you, then the only right response is to humble yourself and bow down in submission and surrender. He used to sing it, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now let's go back to the psalm because it does just give us these two calls, one a call to to delight in God and a call to submit. It also gives us a warning, a call to guard your heart, a call to guard your heart. Psalm 95, let's start at verse 7, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Wow. What an ending. Didn't see that one coming. That's not where I thought this psalm was going. Let's be honest. It feels a little bit like the writer of this psalm just took a hard left. I got a little bit of whiplash when I got there. And it might leave you thinking, "Where, where did this come from? What what does this have to do with anything? Well, let let me see if I can explain to you. The entire last half of this psalm is a warning that recalls Israel's past unfaithfulness. Look at verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert. Now, Exodus 17 records this occasion Of Israel's favor. And I don't have time to read it all, but let me summarize what happened here, okay? By the time we get to this point in the Exodus, the Exodus is the children of God coming out of Egypt and headed towards the Promised Land. By the time we get to this point, the people of God have already established a pattern of grumbling against the Lord. They have already shown themselves to be ungrateful and difficult. Over and over again. They've seen the mighty, the mighty deeds of God, and yet somehow they're still unmoved. Go back sometime and read Exodus 14 to 17. Read those chapters. Just go read it. You'll be stunned. But let me warn you, before you point your finger at the children of Israel, remember your picture there. They're not moved. And here in Exodus 17... Listen, in spite of how God provided manna for them to eat, they question his commitment to them because they're thirsty. Now listen, I I don't want to make too light of this situation because it seems from the reading of Scripture that they may have gone several days traveling through the desert without water. Okay, so I'm not diminishing. This is a legitimate need. This, this is not my son hopping in the car after playing with his friends, begging for a wa- bottle of water and being mad that I don't have one, okay? Because we're five minutes from home. Water's coming, all right? This is a legitimate need. This is a, a deep thirst. But listen to me, their disregard for what, God, what they had seen God do is stunning. They grumble against Moses, which by the way, in reality is grumbling against God. Can I just say this as a side? I'm going to say it because your pastor's not here this morning. When you grumble against him and you grumble against his leadership, when you complain and mumble and talk about him out in the parking lot and text about him, when you fuss about the decisions he's made, let me just tell you something. God placed him in this place as the under shepherd. And Please don't mistake this. You're not just grumbling against Spitz. You're grumbling against God. You are actually saying, God should have given me a different pastor. When you grumble against the servant of God, you grumble against the Lord himself. That one's free. So look at what they said. This is what they say to Moses. Did you actually bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children out and our livestock with, by thirst. You notice what they did? Who did they assign bringing them to Egypt, bringing out of Egypt to? Who? Let me read it again. Y'all listen. They say to Moses, did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They, they, they assign the work of redemption and exodus to Moses. Wow! That's stunning. Moses cries out to God, and God tells him to go and strike the rock, and water will come out. Moses did what God commanded, and God did what he promised, and their thirst was quenched. Now look at Exodus seventeen seven, And he called the name of that place, Massa and Meribah, Those two words have meaning because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, look at it, is the Lord really among us? Is the Lord really among us? How could they even ask that question? How could they be so full of doubt? They observed the plagues in Egypt. They walked up to the edge of the Red Sea with armies of Pharaoh coming behind them and they watched it open up in front of them. They felt the dry ground under their feet as they walked through and then they saw the walls of water descend on the armies of Egypt and destroy them all. They saw the pillar of cloud by day in front of them or behind, and the pillar of cloud by night behind them. They gathered the manna and ate the quail that God rained down from heaven. And they have the audacity to say, is the Lord really among us? How in the world does that happen? Hadn't God made it abundantly clear that he was with them and for them Look at verse 8 of Psalm 95. Your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. And I said, listen to it. They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. Everything. Everything God had done from creation to rescuing them from Egypt should have filled their hearts with awe and wonder and praise and worship and confidence and faith and trust. Faith for the present crisis should have come from an understanding of God's past faithfulness. Seeing all that God had done should have clued them in to the wisdom and loving kindness of God. But it didn't because they had a hard heart. Please don't miss this. If you you don't remember anything else I say today, I want you to lay hold of this. It is possible to observe the mighty works of God and not know him or his ways. It's possible to experience the redemptive work of God and still end up with a hard heart that goes astray. It is possible to engage in the mission of the church and the work of God and still miss knowing him and being known. It happened to the children of Israel and it happens to men and women all the time. And it can happen to you. Listen to the indictment of Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. There it is again in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. but but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen to me, look at me, look at me. When you refuse to honor God, and honoring God is not just a matter of what you say. Honoring God is a matter of positioning your life in obedience and trust. When you don't honor God and you don't give him thanks, you don't acknowledge his goodness and his greatness, you don't praise him for his kindness. When you don't do those things, your thinking will automatically become futile and your heart will become darkened. You mark it down. You go look at people that have a hard heart and don't think straight. And I'll tell you two things that are true of them. They don't honor God and they don't give him thanks. And I'm not talking about just the fruit of the lips. I'm talking about the positioning of the heart and the life. They reject him as God. They reject his authority and they reject his goodness. Listen to me. When you don't Pay attention to these things. When you don't don't abide by the call to rejoice and delight in God, when you don't abide by the call to submit and surrender to him, you have automatically put yourself in a position to start thinking wrongly and your heart is going to end up being dark and hard. The warning of Psalm 95 is do not harden your hearts. That seems really strange to me. Who actively chooses a hard heart? Like, uh, yeah, me, I want a hard heart. Right? We, we don't think that way. But the word here is clear. You are called not to actively, purposefully harden your heart. This may be hard for some of you to swallow, but listen, here's the truth. If you don't do the work of maintaining a heart that delights in God, a heart that is tender and submissive to Him, you are making the deliberate choice to allow your heart to become hard. You want something to write down? Write this down. A hard heart doesn't just happen, you do it to yourself. A hard heart doesn't just happen, you do it to yourself. It's a choice. Let me illustrate it this way. I got teenage boys. These are all my illustrations, all right? I'm like, son, that milk, when you're done, where's it go? Where's it go? Y'all know where's it go? Back in the fridge. If it doesn't go in the fridge, what's gonna happen? It's gonna sour. Unless you like buttermilk, you better put it back. I'm gonna tell you this, my teenage boy deliberately chooses soured milk because he doesn't actively choose to put it back in the fridge. I don't look at him and go like, oh man, it just happens. You know, just sour milk, it just happens. You just never know how it's gonna happen. You know exactly how it happens. That bag of loaf bread, sandwich bread, whatever y'all call it. When you're done, you will put that little twisty tie back on there? You are actively, purposefully choosing dry, hard bread. It's not rocket science, people. If you want to keep stuff fresh, you do what it takes to keep it fresh. If you don't do what it takes to keep it fresh, you are choosing stale, dry, soured, nasty, mold-growing junk. (laughs) Listen, it's not rocket science. If you don't regularly choose to do the work of keeping your heart tender, delighting, submissive and surrendered to God, your heart will become hard and resistant and it will go astray. Listen, that's why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. You know what? I've known that verse a long time. And here's the deal. I always think of that in the defensive, right? Guard, you know, we say this to young men, don't look at pornography, guard your heart. Don't look at this, don't take this in, don't do this, guard your heart. You got to keep the evil stuff out. But listen, a guard doesn't just keep the, the wicked out, a guard lets the good in. Uh, there's an offensive element to guarding your heart. It's not just keeping out the bad. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? The good man brings up good out of the good stored up in his heart. There is a proactive, offensive work of guarding your heart and you and I must engage in it. Listen, if you don't actively choose to cultivate a heart towards God, you are deliberately choosing a heart that goes astray. This is one of my greatest fears for many of you. You don't spend time in the Word of God. You think you're too busy to get up 30 minutes early and read the Word of God. You make all kinds of excuses Just go to your phone and pull that out and look at screen time. And then you imagine standing in front of the king of kings at the judgment day saying, I would have spent some time with you, but all of this was so much more important. You got time. You got time. You can do it. And if you don't choose to do it, hear me, you are choosing a hard, resistant heart that goes astray from God. You and I must do the work. So turn your heart to delight in God. Sing and shout and give thanks and worship and celebrate and make much of Him. Lead your heart to awe and wonder and humble yourself. Get down on your knees, even in here. Get down on your knees, prostrate yourself. Do you know in the scriptures, that's the posture in worship that's most often mentioned? More than anything else, the posture of laying prostrate, humbling ourselves in submission before the Lord is what the scripture calls us to. Bow down to him, trust and obey him. Listen, God says to the Israelites, In my anger, I declared, you'll never enter my rest. Listen to me. The results of a hard heart are disastrous. They're disastrous. They are disastrous. That generation was excluded from the promised land because their wandering hearts turned away from God. They missed out on satisfaction and joy and security and blessing that came from abiding in the presence of God. And here's what I'm going to say to you today. Don't miss the same thing. God has called you to a rest, not a do nothing rest, not a lay on the couch rest, but a rest of satisfaction, a rest of joy, a rest of pleasure that comes from being in His presence. And if you and I are gonna enter that rest, listen to me, we're gonna have to do the work of actively turning our hearts towards God. So today from Psalm 95, three things. Hear the call to rejoice and delight in God, hear the call to submit and surrender. And hear the call to guard your heart. Can we pray together? God help us. God help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to abide by your word and do what you've called us to do. To delight in you. And to express that. To submit to you. And to live that out in obedience. And to guard our hearts. God, we want you. We want you to reign supreme in us. God, we want you to make yourself at home in our hearts. So God, we, we, we submit ourselves to you today. We surrender ourselves to you today. And we say, Holy Spirit, come and do your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.